You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. All right. Um, we are in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, paper, or digital, uh, open that up to 1 John chapter 2. There was a slide on the screen about questions. There's also um, a link you can follow on the important channel of Slack. If you have a question that I might take time for at the end if we, if we have time or um, answer later in the week. Um, so don't be afraid to use that link at, at the important channel on Slack or scan that right now with your phone, the QR code. We're starting in chapter 2, verse 15. Now, in the, first of, in the book of 1 John, there's this word that's repeated all the time, and it's a word that we have a lot in our culture as well, repeated all the time, and it's the word love, the word love. John talks about love a lot all throughout 1 John, and it almost always is used in a positive sense. It's an exhortation to love God, to love others. It's always in a positive sense. Huge theme. So he's saying to them then and to us now, this is how you are to love in a positive sense. But today, it's the only time in the, first, in the book of 1 John where he uses love in the negative. Like, do not love in this way. It's the only, first and only time in 1 John. And so today, we're going to look at what we're called not to love what we're called not to love. The, um, so let's take a look now at verse 15 of this negative exhortation. It says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So do love, like, like last week we talked about. Love is a big deal. Love in the church. Love in our relationships. Love with the Lord. God is love. We're made in his image to reflect him in the way that we love. Today, it's do not love. What, what, was the, what was the word? What was the repeated word? Do not love the world. But maybe you might be thinking, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. God loves the world. Are we not supposed to love the world like him? Well, it's really important that we define what we mean. And how does John use the word world in the context of the book of 1 John, okay? And the word world, if you look at it, in these three verses is the most repeated word in these three verses. It's very important to pay attention to repeated words when we interpret our Bibles. And this repetition is for the sake of emphasis. Repetition for the sake of emphasis. It shows you what John is focusing on. So we have to define what he means by the word world. It's kind of one of the keys to unlocking this passage. 
And I'll just tell you, what John means is the realm of rebellion against God. The world, in this context of 1 John, is defined as the realm of rebellion against God. And we see this later in chapter 4. You can flip over to that if you want, starting in verse 2. It'll also be on the screen. 1 John 4, 2 through 5, says this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There it is. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So this just helps us understand what, what John means by world. It's the realm of rebellion against God. Anything that you can think of that's Christ, the opposite is the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist is in the world. So now flip back to, to verse 15 of chapter 2. So hone in on verse 15 for a second. We, you'll see an intentional contrast. If you look at verse 15 with me, look at it right now. What's the contrast? The contrast is between the world, right, and the Father, love of the Father. So he's saying they're mutually exclusive. You can't love the world and love the Father. See it there in 15? The Father's love is not in those who are in love with the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So mutually exclusive. The world, love the Father. Love the world, love the Father. So he's setting this up. Like, you got to kind of choose. It's not like 10%, 90%, 20-80. No, it's 0-100. So it's a pretty basic statement, right? Now, you might be wondering, so, so what does this look like, though, in real life? What does this look like in real life? Like, what should we be looking out for to help, to help ourselves diagnose if God's love is in me, if, my, if I, the love of the Father is in me, do I love him? Or am I in love with this world and in love with rebellion against God in some ways? It's a great question, because that's exactly what John does next. He's anticipating that from his original audience and from us. And he gives us some things to look out for, to watch out for. Like, where should we be quick to repent? Where should we be on guard? What are the leanings of my heart that I should wrestle against, fight against? It's a great question. And so he tells us, look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay? So we got three things, one, two, three, that John says is kind of like danger zone for Christians. Christians. 
He's saying, don't love these things. Love the Father instead. It's so much better. But I think it would be important for us to kind of break these three down and, and try to unpack them a little bit. These are the things that rob us of love of the Father. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life. See it there in verse 16? So let, let's start with desires of the flesh. These are temptations that come from within our bodies. We're going to see temptations that are outside our bodies in a second, but these are temptations from within our bodies. The New Living Translation translates desire of the flesh as a craving for physical pleasure. Okay? And for me, like in our culture, it seems like three things kind of summarize this. This is an exhaustive list, but I would say it's maybe 90% of how our culture expresses this. It's food, sex, and comfort. Food, sex, comfort. Food, sex, ease. Let's think about these for a second. Food, sex, comfort, or ease, leisure. Now, are these things bad in and of themselves? No, the Bible says they're not bad. Like God created us to eat. God created us to have sex within God's ordained proper boundaries. And comfort, if we define it as rest, it's a really good thing, necessary. Like if you don't eat or if you don't eat or sleep, like you'll literally die. Go insane. So if, if these things are good gifts from God, as defined through the whole of the scriptures, what is John getting at here? I, th I think the key is the verse 15. Look back at verse 15. And the word that's most important is love. I do not love the world. Like Jesus said, you can't love God and money. They're mutually exclusive. And similarly here, if you love the world, do you love these things at the exclusion of God? Like a diagnostic would be, what occupies the majority of my thinking? Is it chasing food, sex, or ease, or comfort? Like, what do you most reflect on? What do you most meditate on? Like, these kind of questions help us discern our loves. Just thinking about food. This is why fasting can be such a good thing for us. Like, on the one hand, I know I have to have food or I will die. Like, God designed me that way. So food in my body is a good thing. But food will not be my master, right? It will not be my first love. And when we fast and just stop eating for a period of time, I'm reminded that God is my first love. I will not be mastered by these things that I eat. Like food is good. I can't love it too much or it will consume me. 
Literally, it can kill you. Obesity can kill you. Gluttony can kill you. It's a problem in our culture. It really is. Like You, you can be consumed by what you consume. That's a, there's an irony there, right? And it's the same with comfort or ease, right? On the one hand, if I don't have periods of time where I rest, like, you, you literally will lose your mind. Like, lack of sleep leads to hallucinations and just going crazy if you do it long enough. Like, your body will just start to shut down. Like, you know how, like, um, you know, parents of young kids, you're in the haze of sleeplessness, right? And a good night's sleep can just, like, change your worldview, right? It's like my, my, the, the lens through which I was looking at the world just changed when I got some good sleep. That's good. But do I love comfort and ease the, the biblical word in the Proverbs is being a sluggard at the exclusion of God's will for my life. Like if we're so used to ease and comfort, what's going to happen when our faith calls us to do hard things? If your faith never calls you to do anything hard, you're probably not a Christian. I mean, I, I'm, I've been looking my whole life for those verses, right, that say, stay in bed all day, eat whatever you want, never exercise, and it's going to be great. It's not in there. And even more important than the physical, the spiritual. Like when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, was he joking? He wasn't. Like, his first followers knew exactly what he was saying. Like if you don't have a category for death of the self, for the crucifixion of the flesh, Christianity is going to be really hard. It's probably a different religion that you might be experiencing. For many of us, it's not going to be actual physical execution for our faith. It does happen in our world today. It doesn't happen, thankfully, very often here. But it is the execution of your flesh. Like, if you don't have a category for that, that horrible feeling when you know you've sinned against someone and you know you need to ask for forgiveness, but everything within you is like, no, don't do it. Just stay angry. And, and, and crucify that and go repent. Like, you probably aren't a Christian if you don't have a category for that. Or if, like, when, when the Bible says, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. And you're like, there's just no way I'm getting on a plane. There's no way. It's too scary. Well, maybe that's okay in some sense. But what about how you pray? What about how you give? Not everybody's called to get on a plane and, and move to wherever, but how about your generosity? 
How about your prayer life? How about like being involved in a community that's going to send and be vitally connected and not just on the sidelines? Like being willing to be uncomfortable with, with prayer and with, with finances and with conversations. See, if we're in love with comfort and ease, desires of the flesh, like the call of Jesus, and when we read our Bibles, you're just going to have to take a scissors to your Bible. Like a lot of the stuff just won't even compute. Same with sex. Our world is sex crazy. It's like so over the top and unrealistic and just plainly disappointing the way that our world presents sexuality. Like sex is a good gift from God, seen in its proper boundaries, man, woman, in marriage for life. But sex doesn't change your life. Like, I remember thinking before I got married that sex was going to change my life. It doesn't. It's a good gift. It's a good gift. Not life-altering, life-changing. It's not the sun around which we orbit. Our culture wants us to believe that because it sells. But, like, if you're in love with chasing sex, you can be horribly disappointed. You never arrive. I wasn't created to be a god it's created to be a good gift in a certain boundary. So it's a good gift in marriage. It's a really bad God. And also, singleness is possible. Just as an aside, singleness is possible. And even more so, singleness should be celebrated for some people. Like a sexless life is not an unfulfilled life. It's not less than human. The 40-year-old virgin isn't a comedy, even though our culture thinks it is, right? It could be a really, really good thing for the sake of God and his glory. Because we have an anthropology, we have a doctrine of human beings that goes way deeper than just what you do in, in the bedroom. And this over here, as opposed to this over here, is way more satisfying. So, Let's ask ourselves, do we love food, sex, or comfort to the degree that this is squashing or muting or anesthetizing our love for God, our love for the Father? Like, does it occupy our minds too much? Does it rob us of joy when we discover that it doesn't deliver the things that we were hoping it would deliver? These are important diagnostic questions. Maybe you should write those down in your, in your Bible, in your First John journal, and ask God in prayer to help you discern your own heart. Sometimes we don't even know. Sometimes it's complicated. I'm, I'm a jumbled mess of motivations. Like, I'm, I'm just like that. It's like you all are. You should ask God in prayer, Lord, help me sort this out. Where am I off? Would you bring it to light? And, and share that with a trusted friend. Can we pray about this together? I'm trying to discern my own heart. I don't even really know right now. But these are important diagnostic questions when it comes to what we're talking about in verse 15. The first one is desires of the flesh. What's the second one? Desires of the eyes. Desires of the eyes. These are the temptations outside our body, right? Desires of the flesh is inside my body. What are the desires 
of the eyes, the things that I see out there, not the things I feel in here, the things I see out there. It's like longing for the stuff I don't have. What do I want out there that I'm not getting? I mean, social media, anyone? Right? You have full access to what everybody's doing that you're not doing. We look at it with our eyes. You know, the Bible says the eyes are the portal through which we see and where desires spring up. Just ask yourself this one. Like, is social media helping me with this? And some of you, maybe the answer is yes. And I'm not going to stand up here and say the Bible commands you not to be on social media. I would never say that. But I think it's important for us to ask the question and then just be honest with the answer. Some of you might say, yeah, I don't really, honestly, my conscience is clear. I don't feel like my use of social media is a problem. I don't feel this stirring up of desire and envy and jealousy or just aimlessly endless scroll, nothingness, wasted 30 minutes that you'll never have back. Maybe that's not you. And I, I got no issue with that, right? No one's going to stand in condemnation of you. But some of you need to put down the gram. But for real. Some of you just need to be done with it. It's robbing you of joy. Constant comparison. You, you, you put it away and you have that feeling of just unsettled kind of anxiety. Oh, hey, look at that. Oh, boy. Good catch. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, some of us need to put it down. You just need to put it down. Hit delete. Or start with fasting. I'm going to take a month off. And, just, and then just pay attention to my emotions. Because that will tell you, are the desires of the eyes going crazy? If, if my emotions are like, man, I feel lighter. I just feel like I'm not like feeling competitive with this other person in my life. I think ladies especially, I know you all struggle with comparison. Like it's an it's a, it's a epidemic for most women. Like look what they're doing with their kids. Oh, I'm a bad mom because I'm not doing that. Oh, they're making all natural food for their kids and it's gluten-free and it's perfectly perfect and I'm feeding my kids Cheerios. Like what the heck? Right? Like the, the Bible calls us to battle for contentment. We're going to get to that in a second. Because I have a loving Heavenly Father who promises to provide everything I need because of the cross and the empty tomb. So my eyes don't have to be constantly wandering. They can be looking up at him. God, you are Jehovah Jireh, my provider. So that's the power of contentment. Comparison, jealousy, envy, stirred up in a thousand different ways. Not least the misery. It just makes you tired and anxious and probably angry sometimes. It's not just social media and screens. Like, unless we're physically blind, we live life with our eyes just wide open, right? There's always the danger to fall in love with the things that we are seeing. 
Now, it's not all bad, right? This is, this is just how God has created us. We see things, you know, your car breaks down, you need to buy a new car, right? You're going to do that with eyes wide open, looking at stuff. But the question that John is asking us to wrestle with is my love, the extent of my love. Like, am I in love with that new car, right? Another way to diagnose diagnose this is what happens to my emotions when I realize I can't have something that I want? Like, that's part of the test. Like, do we throw an adult kind of sanitized adult tantrum like in your heart that no one's really going to see, but it's still there? Or can we preach to ourselves this verse on the screen that is so good to help us in our battle against the, de- the desires of the eyes? Look at, this is one to jot down for memorization. This is daily life right here. So good. First Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not loss. It's gain for you. Godliness with contentment. Why, Paul? Well, he tells us, for we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. We're going to see this in a second. There's no permanence. All this stuff we're looking at, it's not permanent. There's something better. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Just basics, right? Those who desire, same word as in our text, desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, the many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but again, the word love, do you love it? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Money's necessary, but do you love it? How much do you love it? At the exclusion of other things? It's the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Like, I don't know what it is for you or where, like, the continuum is or where you cross the line and where you don't, but the Bible just says that if you keep going a certain direction, it can rob you of any sense of relationship with God. So, man, this verse helps us so much to go to war against this stuff. And, and to have that be circulating in my mind with, when my eyes are open. Like, like, I see that car, I see that house, I see that whatever. Clothing, you know, like, yeah, there's a time to buy stuff, of course. But as I look at that, can I say, First Timothy 6.6 6 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Lord, I want to I have gain, so I want to do it as you define it. Help me with contentment. Help me with contentment even as I buy it or even if I don't buy it. May my love for you be supreme and not in stuff, right? Thirdly, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, the pride of life. Pride of life. Now, another translation I think is a little more helpful uh, is translates this word life as possessions. And that's another in the Greek. It could also be translated possessions. And a lot of scholars would say that's a better translation, so I'm going to use that. This is not, so like pride of the eyes is loving the stuff that we don't have. The pride of life or the pride of possessions is loving the stuff that we do have. See that? 
loving this stuff more than we love God. I'll never forget 10 years ago, I was working at the Apple Store. No, this was 12 years ago. I was working at the Apple Store, 2010. And uh, my first day at work was the launch of the iPhone 4. And I got in line as an employee, and I'm getting one of those. And I never had a, 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 a true smartphone before. I had a BlackBerry, but that doesn't really count. And, man, this thing, I remember opening that box. It's all shiny, you know. It's like this thing is going to change my life, right? Taking pictures, emailing to people, photo editing, maps. Like I'll never be lost again. I can't find my way anywhere. And now I've got the power of mapping the whole globe in my pocket, right? It's amazing. It's like Gollum with the ring. It's my precious, right? This is my precious. Just looking at it, how beautiful it is. The design of Steve Jobs, genius, right? But what happened to Gollum with the ring? Destroyed him. Turned him into a monster. And that's kind of Tolkien's point in The Lord of the Rings, right? If you love something too much, it will destroy you. Our possessions, pride in our possessions can consume us and destroy us. What did Jesus say? Listen to what Jesus said in this powerful parable. Let's be reminded. You'll see it on the screen. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. A lot we can say about that parable. It's not our text for this morning. But the thing I want you to see is, what is Jesus saying? All your stuff can be gone in an instant. Could be a hurricane, could be a house fire, Jesus could return, I mean, it could all be gone in an instant. Like the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride in our possessions, zero permanence. Like one pastor that I love, he he reminds us in a book that I read 25 years ago, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. You get it? There's no U-Hauls behind hearses. True, lasting satisfaction. Not the temporal stuff like Jesus and John are talking about, but true, lasting satisfaction. And God wants us to have lasting satisfaction. It's not when we chase the love of the world, the love of fleshly things, the eye things, possessions more than God. That just sets us up for misery and disappointment. It's like, man, I, I've got a vicious sweet tooth. Like, I can pound some desserts, right? No problem. Eat one cookie, I'm eating six. Like, it's just like, 
blood in the water like a shark. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going for it. And, you know, Kim and I go on a date night, you know, order a nice dessert. And it tastes so good going down, right? But then in a couple minutes, it's gone. It's gone. It's over. Like, what do I do now? Let's order four more, right? But there's a problem. If you keep doing that, eventually you will get sick and you will barf, right? You weren't created to just keep trying to indulge in that which is not lasting, right? Like, too much of a good thing quickly can become a bad thing. Another way to say it is to make a good thing into a God thing is always a bad thing. Trying to make a good thing into a God thing is always a bad thing. Dessert is good. If I'm trying to make it my God, I will probably just get really sick, right? And all things like that dessert that I love to eat, it's passing away. Even such good things like my marriage, my parenting, my job, my house, my relationships, my money, my hobbies, all these things are good, but they are not lasting. They're not permanent. They have no permanence. They're, they're passing away. We give thanks for these things. Lord, thank you for your good gifts. I want to worship you and not your gifts. I want to wor- worship the giver and not your gifts. But thanks for these things. We don't worship these things. We don't make these things the object of our ultimate affection. Any of it can be taken away at any moment. That's why it's a bad God. But to use the language of the text, what can't be taken away? God and his word. God and his word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The word of the Lord has permanence. So that's something I should love, right? See, God calls us to desire something better than the shallow, short-term stuff of the world. What are the things that last forever? God, relationships, and his creation. Like the creation we live on right now will be remade and last forever. That's Revelation 21. God exists forever, his word exists forever, you exist forever, his creation exists forever in a remade form. And that's what the last verse of our text underscores. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Like all this stuff, the eyes, the flesh, pride and possessions, it's all passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Doing the will of God, it's just a longer way of saying obedience. Hearing, believing, trusting by faith, and then acting in light of it. He's saying doing what God says brings a blessing. The blessing of abiding with God forever. I'm going to abide And I'm going to abide, connected to, in relationship with God forever. 
having him forever, living with him forever. Like God is the ultimate reward. Not his gifts, right? All the stuff we see, all the stuff we want, if we put it in the right place, those are God's good gifts to us. James 1, from the Father of lights, all good gifts come from the Father of lights to his children. And to the degree that we don't worship them, we see them as good gifts, but we don't worship the gifts. We get worship the giver. And we abide with him forever. So here's the deal. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you've acknowledged your sin where verse 16 kind of stuff is flying around in my heart all the time, but I don't want it to, and I want to repent of those things and turn towards Jesus and trust him that he's going to take care of all of my sin at the cross, because he perfectly fulfilled the law in the way that I couldn't, like I'm breaking the law all the time with my eyes and my desires and pride and all my stuff. And I bring that to him. I say, Lord, I need your help. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He says, I would love to show you mercy. Look to my cross. Look to my empty tomb. And when you know that's yours, that your sin has been forgiven, or your desires have gone crazy and you bring that to him and your sin has been forgiven, pure grace, pure mercy, nothing you've earned, nothing you've achieved, then, you, then you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. He sends his Holy Spirit and dwells you with his spirit. And then over time, your desires start to change. You get like a, a transplant of your taste buds where sin used to taste good and now sin starts to taste gross. And God's word was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't taste good. And it starts to taste really good. Sometimes it doesn't happen in an instant. It happens over time. A lifestyle of repentance and forgiveness. It's never going to be perfect. We are sinners and saints at the same time. We'll always have things we need to repent of, and God's going to help us in. But as we put off desires that are tempting, that we're tempted to worship, and put on God and his will, like it says in verse 17, that's where we find true joy and satisfaction. God's not into you having less than the best. And that's why he says, worship me. I'm, God says, I'm the best. Don't worship the stuff. Worship me. It's like, I'm the giver. Give me the glory. That's where you'll find true satisfaction. Let me close with this quote. It's a quote of some quotes, actually. Uh, a missionary and martyr, Jim Elliott, put it, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or as Jesus put it, why lay up for ourselves, quote, treasures on earth that moth and rust destroy when we can lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven that are as permanent as God and his kingdom? As Luther asks, what sort of God is it that is not even capable of defending himself against moths and rusts? Great question. Would we rather desire that which is passing away or that which abides forever? Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word as a gift, and we pray that we would live in light of it, be quick to repent where we fail, and quick to rejoice in the gospel of grace that assures us that you love us even when we fail, and that you call us to be your children, and that our identity is secure in you when we turn and, and live a life of repentance and forgiveness.
And then indwelling, you indwell us with your spirit. We thank you for that. Thank you for the evidence of your grace, of your spirit, the fruit of the spirit alive in us. That we, Most of us here are not what we once were. And some of you, some here, Lord, you know, um, need to embrace this for the first time. Would you do that work of regeneration, Lord? We ask for that. And, and if there's questions that have been stirred up this morning, I pray you would help us work through those in a way that's helpful with you and with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see if we can have a question or two. As we evaluate our hearts and the priorities of our lives, what are some, quote, warning lights to look out for that signify that we love the world more than we love the Father and our brothers and sisters? This question was asked at 10.52, so I think we talked about those post-10.52 this morning. Um, I think I gave a lot of warning lights, but let me just review. I think the important thing to look at is your emotions, your emotions oftentimes will tell you what you love, what you love. How angry do I get? How sad do I get when I don't get what I want? What do I want that I'm not getting? Why do I want it so much? And when I don't get it, how do I respond? I think that's a great kind of self-diagnosis. Like one time, Kim and I um, were, this is many years ago, we were going after this house. The market was crazy, you know, back then, six, seven years ago. And it was really competitive, and we put a really good bid on it, and, and, we, and we didn't get it. And I just remember, like, and I was disappointed, but did it wreck me? Because if it wrecks me, what that probably indicates is I don't trust that I have God as a good provider. I mean, that's ultimately what a lot of this is about, is do I trust that God provides? Or do I have to scan the world with my own eyes and my own power and try to gobble up all the things that I can? Because I'm the only one out here. No one else is looking out for me. God's not looking out for me, so I'm going to do it on my own. Right? It's okay to be disappointed, but like how disappointed are you? Is it incapacitating? Right? That shows us where our idols are typically. So I think that's one thing I would say. Hopefully you find that helpful.